Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared, the host of the Sendcast, and I'm not on summer holiday. If this is your first Sendcast, then welcome. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people, and I want everyone to learn more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we're discussing effective advocacy for your child and why fighting doesn't work. My guest this week is Jodie Warren. Jodie is a SEND coach with over 20 years experience as a specialist teacher. She now supports parents of children with additional needs to understand their child's needs and how to support them. The SENDcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are here to help schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. And we can help schools do this across a wide range of abilities and ages primary school, early year setting, secondary school, specialist setting, we can help you all to show progress. And we do this based on the English curriculum, the Scottish curriculum, and the curriculum for Wales. Did you know you can use B-squared assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time, saving you money, and simplifying the whole assessment process please visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through what our assessment software can do for your school. First of all, let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing effective advocacy and why fighting doesn't work. My guest this week is Jodie Warren. Jodie is an SEND coach with over 20 years experience as a specialist teacher, and she now supports parents of children with additional needs to understand their child's needs and to advocate calmly, confidently, and effectively without burning out. Jodie also delivers training to schools in how to support advocacy as well as training to parents. Welcome to the show, Jodie. Hi, thank you for having me. You are welcome. When people think of advocacy, they generally think of fighting for their child. They're fighting the school and they're fighting the local authority, but it doesn't have to be this way, does it? It doesn't. And I think there's a real difference between advocating and fighting. And it can require quite a conscious effort to move from one to the other. But I think it's a really important thing to do, particularly for parents who are maybe in the earlier stages of their SEND journey. And there can be this very common and sadly it is the reality for far too many parents, but there can be this really common narrative that the only way to get your child the support that they need is to fight, it's to shout, it's to keep banging on the doors. And There are some cases where that is the experience, but there is also, even within that, a way of engaging with it so that it doesn't have the same negative impact on parents' mental health, on parents' physical health. It doesn't have the same impact on their stress, but also that it is more effective. And I think that's the really key thing. When we think about fighting, it's doable, but it's not sustainable. But it's also, it's just not as effective in terms of actually getting your child's needs met. Many years ago, I did an episode on this podcast called The Power of Mood with Fintan O'Regan, which was talking about, and it was doing it from actually a point of a teacher, how you are impacts the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a child dysregulated, mucked around in class, got sent to the head teacher's office. And some people go, I'm going to make them wait outside for five minutes. They can think about what they've done and then I'll bring them in. And then you're the head teacher. They come in, they've, something's gone wrong. They're anxious about that. They've been made to wait outside for five minutes. People have looked at them. People have commented them. Teacher have looked at them. Yet they're already right on the edge and you're going to walk in and they're going to explode. It's important to remember that, that there are things we do consciously or subconsciously have an impact. The way we walk into the room can really grate on that other person. And it works both ways. We've got to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got a really serious meeting coming in and the Senko walks in carefree, well, they're not taking this, merest, this meeting serious enough. Yeah. If they walk in going, yeah, oh, you've got a meeting with the parents, I'll be out in 10 minutes. Oh, Anything they do can just grate on those parents and they'll be there. But it's also the same as you as a parent, how you walk in. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think to, to me, you're not really fighting the score. You're fighting the people behind the score, the people you can't actually get access to. Yeah. I've mentioned this previously is you're, you're, you're in a call center, your internet's out, but the person in that call center, wherever they are in the world, they've got nothing to do with why your internet's out, but that is the person you're able to access and lots of people will shout at them. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned that nothing I say to them or do negatively is going to help me. They're not the person who broke the cable. That's a, di- that's a builder somewhere who went through the cable and now I've got no internet for two days or somebody broke something or someone didn't do something. I can never get hold of that person. I can yeah. never let that person know how I feel. What I get is a poor person in a call center with me frantic. My internet's out. Help. And I'm really going, look, it's not your fault. I get that. I do just because I really want it fixed, but I get that not shouting at you would have no impact. Yeah. So how can I get this? And someone said, if you were to ask my manager, that's sometimes you get these people who go, well, if you say, I'd have to transfer you. If you yeah. ask my manager, I would have to transfer you and escalate it. And just by me going into that phone call, not shouting, yeah, they're going, look, just say these words and then this will happen. Yeah. And it's the same. And I know internet out and my child's future life, they're very different things, but you can with effort because we're emotional. Yeah. With the child. Motion off the football's on or something's going on. You're missing the last episode of Stranger Things or something. You could be quite emotional, but it's not on the scale of your child. It's nowhere near that. But we still got to understand that I need the school to support me and my child. Therefore, I need to support the school. Yeah. And I think what you described there is one of the key differences between fighting and advocating is this collaborative approach. and. You're not, if you can separate it out and think, okay, I'm navigating a system. And there's a book, I've forgotten the author's name, but she talks about her experience of navigating the SEND system. And she said they ended up right at the tribunal stage. But she said it was like a cannon being brought out against a pea shooter. She's like, literally, I'm there, I'm doing my best for my child. And obviously, the system or the authority have just got all of these people, they've got people who do this day in and day out, who are legally trained. And so her, that absolutely felt like a fight for her. But I think, sorry, I've completely lost my train. That difference is that collaboration because you're trying to navigate a system, but actually what you're doing on the day-to-day basis is you're dealing with a person and remembering that. And where you were talking there about the different ways that, for example, a Senko might come into a room we cannot control how somebody else receives how we show up. But what yes. we can do is control how we show up. And it's most effective when you've got school and parents on the same page adopting this approach of actually we want to work together. We want this to be constructive, collaborative. We want a partnership. You can't control if the professional that you're seeing that day has had things going on behind the scene, if they've had a really difficult meeting just before they come into a meeting with you. But you can control whether you go in all guns blazing or if you go in and you're at a stage of being quite calm and you're opening it really clearly with, actually, these are my concerns. These are the questions that I would like answered in our meeting today. And you're presenting them. You're clearly able to communicate that because you're karma. And I think this is the other thing that when we even think about fighting, the body and the brain goes into this stress response. And we see it with children that when they're in a stress response, they can't think as clearly, they can't come up with solutions. Those executive functioning skills reduce. And it's the same for us as adults. So somebody can be saying something that might actually be the beginning of a good idea. It might not be all of a good idea, but it might have potential. But we can be in this stress state that means that we can't hear them and we can't take the bit of the idea that's good and go, well, I wonder, I've noticed at home that this works. Could we build on that so we start to get towards a solution? Yes. And I think that is, it's really detrimental to the relationship with the school, but it's also really detrimental to that parental well-being 
and also those outcomes for the child. And it is that you, everyone has a piece of the puzzle and you're having that conversation and you want those pieces of the puzzle to connect and align and the bigger picture. It's what you all want. But if you're not sharing, if you're not, if you're, yeah, it, it can get, it, the fighting is easy to get into because we are emotional and things like that. It's easy, but you've, it's best if we, it's not hard, but it's best if we go in calm. Um, and one thing that I always find really odd is people, I would like a meeting. Why? Well, I've got things to discuss. Okay, what do you want to discuss? I'll tell you in the meeting. Okay. I, don't, I never like that. And they come into the meeting, they fire this thing at you, and then you're going, well, I don't actually know, I don't have any information on what you've just asked me, so I now can't discuss it with you because I don't have the information. So we can't actually discuss what you want to discuss. I'm going to have to come back to you and have to have another meeting. I, I never get that. I never like that approach. I would like to have a meeting because I feel I would like to discuss these things. And you might go, why are they discussing those? Okay, we'll have a meeting. You don't know why this is. Oh, didn't know about that. Oh, okay. You get to the meeting. I don't know why this is happening. Well, I wasn't aware of this, but since you've asked, I found out lots of information. And blah, 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 blah. We're now a meeting ahead. Yeah. And it works both ways. Now, there are some meetings where you may not want to reveal because you, is, you've actually got to give a lot of information around one statement. Your child has autism or may have autism. Well, there's a lot of others. So you can't just throw that in an email. That's got to be done during a meeting so you can actually have a conversation around. So I think always going to be things like that. But most of the time, if you can have, tell that people know, because for me going in, you've got a meeting with a head teacher. I'm going to go negative if I ever hear that phrase. The head teacher would like to talk about your daughter. Okay. First of all, I'm going to go, what she's gone wrong. Then I'm going to go, what have they misunderstood? Yeah. I, has she done anything wrong? Or is it, she, that's not how she's supposed to be in school. It could be a positive thing. But if you haven't told me either way, I'm generally, most people go negative. Yeah. And I'm a really strong advocate for agendas. Because they use obviously they use them in meetings, and there's various statements out there about it enables everybody on the team to be working towards a common goal, and it enables the whole meeting to be more productive. And I think that reflects what you were just saying there. And if, as a setting, if you're calling the meeting, being able to say, right, this is what it's going to look like, and these are the people who are going to be there, then that increases the chance of a parent arriving having thought about, they've had a chance to think about what they might like to share, what their thoughts are on these different elements. But they're also prepared for how many people are going to be there. Because I know parents who sometimes felt almost ambushed because they've turned up and there's maybe five professionals in the room and there's just them. And they weren't prepared for this topic that was going to be brought up. So that also means by doing that, you're not enabling a parent to contribute meaningfully, which in turn is kind of saying that what they know and what they think isn't as important. Yes. The flip of that, as you said, is if you're a parent requesting a meeting, to be able to be in that mindset of the purpose of this meeting is to move things forward for my child. It's not to catch anybody out. However, they might have shown up, whatever my personal feelings about them are, it is about moving things forward for my child. The most effective way to do that is to tell them what I want to discuss. They yes. then go, they gather the information, they reflect, they come with some possible solutions. Then we have that discussion together. We build on those solutions and we come out with a plan. And I think that way of engaging keeps the child at the center of it at all times. But you've got to put things in place on both sides to reduce that parental anxiety for that to be possible. Otherwise, it can end up just feeling like somebody's trying to be right. And in order for somebody to be right, somebody else has to be wrong. And we're human. So nobody wants to be wrong. I I remember sitting on governor's training and they were talking about how can you avoid conflict? I was like, well, it depends where you sit in the room. What do you mean? I said, if I sit, if Jodie's sitting at a table and I sit in the chair opposite, that's a little bit confrontational. If I sit in the chair next to Jodie, well, now we're going to work together on something. We're going to look at something and we're going to discuss it together. 
And it's certain things, whether we want it, that's how we will see it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you go on a date with your partner, you often sit opposite each other, but when you sit next to each other, it's much nicer. But we have this thing, why do we sit opposite each other? It's a bit odd. Any, in any situation, yeah, if you would like to have a word with your child and you get the dining table and you sit a chair opposite them, they're going to be on edge. Oh, this is like being at this point in the head teacher's office. If you sit next to them, well, you're with them. Yeah. Yeah, so not just that, but what I would say, just to add to that agenda, is if, as a school, you are sending an agenda out to the parents, everything Jodie said, completely agree. I would add a couple of other things in. The first one is a nice, simple line. Is there anything else you wish to add? Yeah? It's a collaborative meeting. Give them a chance to add things to an agenda. But another way of helping them manage their expectations is to put in how long you think the meeting will be or how, if you have any limits. Yeah. So sending out an agenda with 10 items on, they had six and you go, we've got 20 minutes. Not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So making sure you realistically aren't going to have a big meeting, which you know is going to be this big discussion, but no, actually I've only got 45 minutes and I've got to do lunch duty. Tells them that lunch duty is more important than their child's mental health. Yeah. And they'll hear that whether you like it or not. Whether it's how you meant, or you have no control, somebody's off, whatever those reasons, they're not going to hear that. They're going to hear you standing in the playground at lunchtime while other kids play, chatting to someone else is more important than my child's future. Yeah. And as you said, you can't control how that is seen. So, yeah, a time, kind of how long we have and anything you want to add. And it's also important if you have that agenda sometimes having to move things on because sometimes we all go around in circles when we don't agree we go around in circles you add a bit to show my point of view they add a bit to show their point of view we're not really changing yeah sometimes we have to move on so having an agenda and also trying to keep that agenda because you might find actually step two is a two-hour conversation but step four we should all probably agree on but if we get stuck on step two with it being two hours rather than getting look we're not going to agree We'll have a, we'll have more we'll work out what we can do yeah. to improve this, but let's get through the other points. Yeah, it's the agenda is really useful, but they can also add to it and some time frames around each item maybe. Because if on if you literally put in, we can discuss. We know item two is twenty big. We can really allow twenty minutes. It's things like that I think you can do because that way you're helping them expect, know what to expect. We all love our certainty. Yeah. We like it. So, yeah, knowing how many people is really important. And as I discussed with Ginny Bootman, who sits in what chair in that room? There is chair power. Yeah. There's, there is. It's the little things that that potentially don't make as big a difference or you don't perceive make as big a difference from a professional perspective can actually really undermine a parent's confidence or how valued they feel that their contribution is. And when I'm working with parents, we'll look at if, for example, they've requested a meeting and we'll go through, okay, what is it that you want to cover? And literally everything that they want to cover will will come out. And then we'll take that and go, okay, well, what are the themes from this? And what are the non-negotiables? What are the things that you absolutely need by the end of the meeting to have an understanding of or have explored? And it can be whittling that down because I think, as you say, if you end up with a number of things on the agenda or a number of things that you want to address, the ones that are really important can potentially get lost in amongst the other ones. And then there can be 15 agreed actions and somebody can come back going, well, I did nine of them. And you're like, yeah, but those three that you didn't do were the ones that were going to make the big difference. So I think getting really clear about what is the priority for this meeting? And it may be at the end saying, can we have another meeting? Can we arrange to review this, see what the impact of what's been agreed is, can be put in place as well. But that approach, again, to be able to do that, to be able to be flexible, to be able to hear the other person. And I always talk about where you talk about and. So, you know, you might be saying, my child needs to move in order to concentrate And they're saying, but that distracts the other children. Whereas if we rephrase that, it's what I'm hearing is your child needs to move in order to concentrate. And that can be distracting for the other children. 
it's almost giving those two perspectives equal validity and going, so what can we do that will meet the needs of both parties that have been mentioned? Whereas but essentially says, I hear you and I'm dismissing what you're saying. It's a really subtle but important strategy. (laughs) How you say something and how it is inferred is you've asked for this, but I've just heard no, and this is the reason why. That's what I hear. I hear the buts. You've asked this, but it's like, well, the answer is no, and here's what I'm going to tell you why. And it's not up for it's not up for it discussion. My mum used to say a phrase of "Don't you dare," which told me you can do it if you want to, but there'll be a consequence. Yeah. When I thought, well, what's the consequence going to be? And I generally did what she told me not to do because I weighed up what I wanted to do and the consequence. What I wanted to do had a better outcome than not doing it. Yeah. She didn't tell me not to. She said, don't you dare, which to me I heard as, you can do it, but it'll just be a consequence. Yeah. So what she meant and what I heard, very different. And if anyone says the word, you wouldn't dare. It's like, well, I do dare. Yeah. I do. Why wouldn't I? It's like I hear the challenge there. <laughs> yes, it's what, I, it's what I do. And I, I, don't know, I think most people probably don't hear that. <laughs> That's the me thing with my parents. But it just certain phrases can, yeah, have meaning. It's not what you meant. Um, and podcast with Ali Knowles, I'll say something, and she'll say, you can't really say that. I'm going, you're implying your, uh, or inferring your beliefs in the situation. I'm going, I am, aren't I? And it's just things like that, the way she just, not horribly, she just go, you said it, you're almost like, you've done it again. I'm going, didn't I? I was like, this is how it should be. Yeah. I'm inferring and implying that you're not doing it. You don't fit in. And it's like, that's a good point. I keep doing this. I keep kind of just saying, this is how the world is. This is how it should be. This is the way everyone should be acting. When I'm suggesting things, it's as how I'm suggesting. I'm not really accepting who they are and their world. Yeah. I'm kind of try, still trying to get them into my world. I've been podcasting for years and I'm still doing it. Yeah. It's like when your child says something, the non-judgmental response is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And you can do it on a good day. Sometimes I can't do it. And I sit there going, the way I responded made her feel bad. And it's not about that. It's, it was about, it's just being, it's really wet and it is really hard. But I would say, it is hard controlling your emotions Yeah, when it's such an important thing. And that takes energy. Yeah. What I would say, though, without a doubt, that if you could use that energy to control your emotions and you can have a constructive meeting, you will still have used less energy than fighting. Yeah. But you would have made a difference for your child. Yeah. Whereas fighting is very energetic. Yeah. And all you do is you often put up more barriers. So you put, you're knocking one down, but two more might come up. Yeah. And I think I use the analogy of if you want to get through ice, you can smash it or you can melt it. And if you smash it, that is exhausting. And then there's another one because with advocacy, it's a process. It's not an event. So that one meeting isn't the case of I'm going to give it my all and when we've had this one meeting everything's going to be resolved it's a process that goes on and on and I think this is why advocacy can be so exhausting because it is this process but it's also the stakes are too high for you to step away so because it is about your child it's about your child's experience it's about how they're yes about their learning but it's also about their social development their emotional well-being the fact whether they're happy to go to school or whether they're really struggling at school, you have to keep showing up again and again. So if you can work out this way of, okay, well, actually, I'm going to come into this meeting. I'm going to be persistent. So it's not that I'm being passive. It's not that I'm being a walkover. But what I'm really clear on is that this isn't acceptable for my child. But the way that I'm communicating that this isn't acceptable is very calmly, it's very clearly, as opposed to being really angry, which, as you say, gets these other barriers coming up. But by doing that, you're nurturing the relationships and you're creating allies rather than adversaries. 
Because when you have a professional, and it works both ways, the professional coming into a meeting, dreading it, thinking, oh my word, how is this, how is this meeting going to go? It's probably going to be confrontational. I'm worried about it. Then their executive functioning, all of the skills that they have in order to come up with solutions for your child is reduced. So if you can create this culture where there is some trust, or at least there is collaboration, it is constructive, then both sides are working better and you're more likely to find ways forwards. Just to be clear, we're not saying you won't get angry. No, no, no. <laughs> the situation going through, you are going to get angry and it has to come out. But you've really got to remember who are you angry about and generally, as I said, it's never the person you actually have access to. They often have a less, much less control than you realise on the whole situation. So two-year waiting list, you go to your Senko, what can your Senko do? It's a completely different organisation that you're on a waiting list for, but that's kind of the person you have access to. So you've got to get angry, but remember you're not angry at that person in front of you, you're angry at someone else. But you may have to find a way of letting that out. Yeah. Yeah, so that when you go in, that executive function is those sort of things. You are calm, you're able to listen and understand. You're not just listening to throw back something else back, yeah? Yeah. You are listening to understand, and they are listening to understand because if you're both doing that, you get collaborative. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when I talk about effective advocacy, I talk about four pillars, and one of them is this emotional management, this emotional regulation. And that links in with Amelia Nagoski, who wrote her book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And it basically talks about how when we go into this kind of angry phase, when we do go up, we move into that fight flight response. All the hormones that are released, if you go back to caveman days, were really helpful. We needed to run away. But what happens is we go in, we have this meeting and we might have kept it together. It might have been simmering below the surface, but we still had those feelings of anger. If we then just come out of the meeting, we pick our kids up, we go home and we just try to squash it down. Actually, those hormones are still coursing through our veins. So we've still yes. got that impact on physically on our body. So she talks about finding ways to complete that stress cycle. So the examples that she gives could be music, it could be going for a run, it could be doing some weights, but something that actually moves those hormones through your system and out so that they're not lingering, they're not having that negative long-term impact on your well-being. And I think understanding that as well in terms of what can I put in place so I could be incredibly angry about the situation that we're finding ourselves in. But what can I put in place so that at the point that I get to that meeting, I am as calm as I can be, or I am as clear as I need to be? And sometimes yes. what parents find can be, and schools can advocate for this as well, to say, is there anybody you'd like to bring to the meeting? Because it might be you're there, you are emotional, because this is your child that you're talking about. But if in advance you've known what's coming, you've identified what your key points are, the person who comes with you can be the one that just keeps bringing it back and going, I think this was something we wanted to cover. And can we make sure this is covered? But also you've got that moral support. So you've got somebody who you know, not that there are sides per se, but just you know somebody who's going to catch you if actually the emotions mean that you do forget to ask the particular question you wanted or you're not quite how, sure how to respond to something. And just to touch on that caveman is, in the caveman days, life was simple. Not a lot went on. And you would see a danger. Yeah, a danger would be really quite obvious. Yeah, saber-toothed tiger, whatever it is, we jump out and you're going to fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah, one of those will happen and you might fight and win or not. You might run away. But it's very much, I've got away from that situation. I've run away or I fought and I've won. Yeah. It's kind of, it started, it ended, it's over. Really, really clear. With this whole process, there's no real end. No. There's an end to a meeting, but the underlying advocating for your child isn't going to just stop. No. So it's not a clear, 
And that's why you have to release them. It's not, your brain's not getting the signal, danger's over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also true because we can think of advocacy as those interactions with school, with professionals. But there's also what I call informal advocacy. And that can be those interactions with family, with friends, with the stranger in the supermarket who decides they need to pass comment on the way that your child is behaving. So it's coming at you from all angles and it can present in different ways. And it obviously depends on how your child is experiencing the world. It depends on the kind of behaviours that are maybe being observed. And some parents will report, yeah, my parents are invaluable. They get it. They're really supportive. But there was Contact a Family, which I think is called Contact now, did a survey and they found that 65% of families with children with SEND felt continually or regularly isolated. And it's this thing where family and friends just don't get it. And people get to the point where they're like, either I can't be bothered to have this conversation again, to go, it isn't a case of in my day, this is what we would have done, or, oh, it's just behaviour, you just need to be a bit firmer. It's like, I can't do this again. You are just not understanding what is driving this behavior. So they either stop seeing those people or just stop talking about what's important to them and just maybe go to these situations, struggle along and come home. So that advocacy, it's not just about that meeting every six weeks. It's about those daily interactions and the drop-offs and the pickups. And when you look at it like that, you can see why the nervous system can just be consistently in a variation upon fight or flight. And it's doable, but it is not sustainable in a healthy way. I think it is often when children are young, there is this, they'll play up, they'll do this. Yeah, they're kids. And then it's certain level that it's expected that they'll stop. Yeah. And so while they're like, yeah. And then let's say you always go out every month, every often for birthdays, we always go to this restaurant. And you're going, well, we can't because of my child. That'd be really, they'll play up, they'll do this. So can we change it? But we always go there. I know we've always been there, but you're basically saying that my child can't cope with that situation. So were you saying, but we always go there, you're not inviting my child. Yeah. And if you're not inviting your child, you're not inviting me. And now you're calling me being, you're saying I'm difficult. I'm just asking you to change where we go so that it's not an issue for my child. Yes, it's a lovely restaurant. I thought we were going there to see family. Yeah. Yeah. We can have a barbecue. We can do this. But sometimes they just, no, this is the way we've always done it. We've always done this. We like it. Fine, but I can't go. Yeah. And I think that as well, when you think of that, it's like, oh, well, can you just get somebody to look after them? And the families that I support are like, no, that is not an option. And needing to provide that consistency, that support, that nurture outside of school is so important that actually, if you're asking me to choose between a family meal and looking after my child, I'm not coming. And I mean, it's not at all topical, but I remember around about Christmas, this just the conversations that were coming up. And it was basically, could your child just not put their needs on hold? Because traditionally, this is what we do at Christmas. And, oh, you know, Auntie Sue is over from Australia and she'd love to see you. And it's like, they've never met Auntie Sue and it's going to be the entire family descending en masse. This isn't going to work for them. But being able to put up those boundaries and go, it's not about me being difficult. It's about me prioritising what my child needs requires you need a bit of support to be able to do that and that could be where the fact that support is lacking is a real challenge for parents i remember my kids would get kind of worked up we'd be out somewhere they just needed a break and they just wouldn't listen i'm going i'm just going to take what i've learned is if i took them out and put them in the car in their child seat when they could lock them in they could under push the button themselves and just close the door and let them just scream and shout on their own. I didn't like being taken away because they were missing out. And they had to then balance up. I can shout at my dad and do all this, or I can, I've got to calm down. Yeah. And whether or not it's a good thing to do, some person was going, yes, you should be doing that's a reason. We then had a talk about what they were doing. Yeah. And all this lot. And we always hugged and it, they were always fine with it. 
my wife didn't always like it because can you not just not do this today? And my answer was they either accept us as we are and the way we parent or they don't. But on every single day, my child and me are more important than external family. Yeah. Yeah. Than strangers than anyone else. Yeah. I don't care about them. I care about my daughter. Yeah. And I'm not going to shout at her. I'm not going to smack her. When she's worked up, she doesn't really listen to reason. Yeah, we get that all now. You learned that when you're dysregulating, you're not really listening to reason. Yeah. And both my daughters, to regulate them was completely opposite. It was quite interesting as I learned that. But it always had the talk and the conversation had to come afterwards. Yeah. When it was calm. And that's what worked. But even that... My wife would go, oh, it's not the typical way of parenting. We shouldn't be doing that. Just put up with it. And I'm like, well, no, because actually they need consistency. Not like you can behave this way at home, but if you're out, you can be worse. And I think there's a difference there, isn't there, between that recognition that our children are behaving in a certain way because of a need. Yes. As opposed to our family go to this restaurant because of a preference. Yes, And when it's a need, it's like, I, I appreciate it's inconvenient. I appreciate that it is causing a challenge in whatever perception that might be. But the reality is that the need is there. They're not choosing to struggle with this. They're not choosing to show up in this way. Whereas the fact that I really like Thai food and I really want to go to a Thai restaurant is a preference. I can have a barbecue and still have a perfectly lovely time for my birthday. and. There is a definite piece that's important in there around parents looking after themselves and recognising what it is that they need in order for them to be able to regulate, in order for them to top up their resources. But it can also be about separating that out and going, actually, maybe it's going to be me that goes to this family meal because I would really like that connection. But also, they are going to have to accept that it's not going to be us as an entire family because we can't do that whilst prioritising yes. our child's needs. And the thing which always actually when you sit back is you're generally making adaptions in your life every single moment, every single day. You're literally asking for them to adapt their life for two hours. Yeah. In reality, that's all you're asking. Mm. Yeah. If your child turned up in a wheelchair and where you like, they'd immediately adapt. Yeah. It's really quite, oh, they've broken the leg. Well, okay, we normally eat upstairs, so we'll go somewhere else. Yeah. And that's then really even more offending, especially if you're advocating for your child and you're losing against the family, then another relative breaks their leg and suddenly we don't go to that restaurant anymore and we do all this and we change this and we do it and literally going, so my child doesn't matter, but that's not really what they're saying. No. But it's what you will hear as a parent. What they're really saying is, I don't understand, but I understand a broken leg means can't go upstairs. Yeah. It's an understanding, but that's not, again, it's going back to what we hear. Yeah. You can't control what that other person hears, or how they feel. Yeah. And I think there is that piece there around which people do you choose to invest the time and energy in educating or trying to educate? You can educate all you like actually whether or not they hear it is their responsibility and which people and it's not easy to do but do you just let that go so the you know the strangers in the supermarket it's not easy to do to just actually focus on your child and they can be saying what they're saying they can be doing whichever looks they're doing but in that moment, your time, your energy is going on, right, what can I do to make this easier for my child? How can I support them to regulate, to get calm again? And where parents potentially get drawn into that, trying to move their child through that dysregulation quicker, because maybe it is embarrassing. and Maybe they do feel that they're being judged. What that can do is escalate things further and it can make it harder for their child to regulate. But it is not easy to be able to separate out, actually, I'm going to ignore what's going on over there. and This is where I'm going to place my attention. And that can be where you need that support 
And to recognise that is a form of advocacy. And where do I choose to focus in that moment? It's, it is really hard, but I think as you move down that journey, it kind of, it comes to you. I think early on, you are worried what everyone else thinks. And over time, you realise I really don't care. Yeah. That will happen. You're literally going, I don't care. And people might say, well, if you put on a sunflower lanyard, then I would know to treat your child differently. It's like, yeah. But he doesn't want to be treated differently. He doesn't want to be seen as different. Mm. He might need it in some situations, but he doesn't want to wear a big beacon saying, I'm different. And sometimes it doesn't go as we want, but that's his choice and I have to respect that. And that's the thing is that pupil voice, yeah, what they want, that child starts much earlier than people realise. And sometimes you end up fighting your child on certain things because you know in your heart doing this would be easier yeah but you reason you know that because you've experienced various things which has led you to that conclusion your child hasn't yeah and sometimes for external factors they've got to go through this challenge and then go yeah you're right go to a matrix quote knowing the path and walking the path are very different things yeah and I think that heightened emotion makes walking the path even harder. Yes. And it, it is, it's, it can't be anything other than emotional because this is your baby. Yes. Okay. What else? Anything else we need to cover? I think the four pillars of effective advocacy are really helpful to understand. So we've got fighting. We know what fighting looks like. One of them is understanding your child's needs. So if you're going to be able to advocate effectively for your child, understanding what they need, starting to understand, and it's a process. You don't hit the ground running. There's no manual. But starting to unpick, as you said, actually, this environment is going to be too busy or that's going to be too late for them. Or actually, after a school day, they need to go home and decompress. They can't then go and do, you know, a family meal or whatever it might be. Understanding their needs is important for that, but it's also important when you're doing that more formal advocacy because you can go in and potentially end up having a conversation maybe with a member of staff where they're really focused on your child's behaviour. But if you understand their needs, you can be saying, well, yes, I appreciate that they may be reacted physically in this situation, but we know that they find these sensory stimuli difficult to tolerate. And what I'm hearing is that this happened in this room. Is there anything that we could do to create a different routine that means that they're maybe not experiencing that overwhelm, whatever it might be? So you're able to take that discussion down from the behaviour through to the need and thinking about what support, what adaptations are needed to support that need. I think the second one is understanding the system understanding what can you ask for, who do you need to speak to. And one of the big things is the amount of jargon that is involved in the SEND system. And when you're in it, you can be sat in a meeting. I used to work across a number of schools. I was in an advisory teacher and some of them were federations and some of them were part of much bigger organisations that maybe had a school in our authority, but also in many other authorities. And they would have their own acronyms for certain things. So I, as a professional, could be sat in a meeting and have to ask, can you just clarify what that means and what is the role of that person? So I think understanding the system, there is lots that you can read about in terms of, okay, what is the graduated approach? What does that look like? But also in terms of in my child's school, who do I need to speak to? What is their job? Sometimes you need to go straight to the school. So it might be looking at the school's information, their SEND policy, their SEND report. And equally, it can be ringing up and going, this is what I want to talk to somebody about. Who is the best person to speak to in the first instance? So understanding those systems can just help you feel more confident as you're moving through them. And a really 
big part of that is being confident enough to ask. Because I think sometimes parents feel like, oh, I should know this already. And there's no reason you should know it because you've not done it before. And there's all this jargon bouncing around. And actually, you could take the same professionals and put them in your professional capacity. They probably wouldn't understand what's going on. So just being confident to ask enables you to contribute far more meaningfully and really play an active part of that team. The third pillar is around this kind of soft skills. So it is, you mentioned the example with the call center guy, and it's thinking, okay, I'm having this conversation. I want to get somewhere. Thinking about the person that is in front of you. And okay, so I hear what you're saying and you're really listening to understand. These are my concerns and communicating them really clearly and then building together that problem solving, those communication skills, all of those that you may use really effectively in your professional life in other situations, but bring them to this quite emotionally charged situation and you can find that it's harder to access them. Yeah. So buoying them up and also within there is your confidence to go, actually, no, my opinion not only matters, but is really relevant. As you say, it is a piece of this puzzle that will help us find the best way forwards. And then that fourth pillar is the emotional management. So it is how do you move through your stress cycle? How do you look after yourself so you can not only keep on showing up for your child, but also have time to spend with them, to enjoy them in between? Because the advocacy can sometimes be all-consuming. It can take over all of a parent's thought space. It can take all of their energy. And then that detracts from that enjoyment of your child in between whiles. Yes. Too much to add in there. What your child needs, also what they want. Yes. So they could align. They could go against each other. So what you know they need and what they actually want could be very different. So you've got to understand that. Because so what they want now and what they want, and all those sorts of things. And the other bit is just going on that, all those softer skills, is most time we will go into a meeting, we want to be right, we want to be heard. I may even want the last word on something. What I've come to realise is none of that matters. I want the outcome. I'm going for an outcome. Yeah. And I've learned, and I'm not saying I can do this always emotionally with my child when discussing them and things like that, but I know in business I will let people win points. Yeah, make, they can feel they've won on areas. Yeah. If that means they'll give me what I want because they're feeling voiced. Oh, yeah, I've won on these points. Yes, yes, you can have that because I've won on these three. <laughs> if I get the bits I want, even though I've, conceded things or not said what I want to say. If I get the outcome I've wanted, then I've won. Yeah. And that's really hard to do in an emotional situation. But what is the point of that meeting? Right down at the beginning, what do I want out of this meeting? And then say to yourself, well, how do I get this? Is it winning a point? Is it making someone look bad? Or is it making them feel good? So you will work together and get the outcome you want. Yeah. And it's really hard when you're emotionally involved. When it's business, life's a lot easier. Yeah. But when it is an emotional conversation, to not say those things which are just in your head, shouting out of your head, to not say that in the meeting is really hard. You want to say, you want to let those emotions out, but it was going to be very destructive and by saying that thing, you won't get to where you want to get to. Yeah. And there's not getting to where you want to get to in that meeting, but then there's also not getting to where you want to get to long term. Because you could win yes. this one. So you could let it all out. And at the end of the day, you come out and you go, okay, they agreed to X. But actually, longer term, either you're going to have to keep going in at that level every single time rather than other people picking up some other weight and going, I know this is our priority and this has come up and I wondered if that might be supportive. Can we introduce that? So it's that longer term, am I creating a team? Are we working together? 
in their next meeting, are they going to come in with more defensives yeah. that actually my now shouting won't work? But now I've they've got big defenses up. Now how am I going to get through them? Yeah. And the calmer approach will always win. It's not always easy, but it generally works. Because you can walk out that meeting and you're not having to spend the next two hours coming down again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're not getting in that car and bursting into tears because of what they said. Well, they said that because of the reaction to what you said. Tit for tat <laughs> is what happens. Yeah. It's not a collaborative process. Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to wrap it up there. Jodie's once again given me some links. So one of them is how to prepare for meetings in order to advocate effectively. So lots of advice there, as well as Jodie's contact details. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been lovely. And as always, all the links, contact details and everything else will be in the show notes. And you'll find the show notes where you listen to the podcast or on the website. As always, thank you for listening. Please share us on social media. If you love listening, if you love the guests, share with your circles. Let others know. Everyone's on a different place with their journey. Yeah, and it's always nice to hear from someone further along. Yeah, it's great to share. So share things with others. That way you can help others too. And as always, with B Squared, if you are struggling to show progress, yeah, if your assessment process is just too complicated or it doesn't work, have a look at the B Squared website and book a free online meeting and we'll take you through how we can help you. We've got lots of different assessment products for level of ability, age, different frameworks, different age, whatever there is. There is lots. Yeah, so if you don't know about the engagement model, the pre-key stage standards, please get in contact. And you can find out about our online training, our CPD, read our blog, watch our webinars. It's all on the B Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting in the show notes as well. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sencar. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.